Section 67 of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Part 2, Book the Fourth, Chapter 9. Abyssos Abyssum Vocat. Another face disappeared. Tom Jim Jacks. Suddenly he ceased to frequent the Tadcaster Inn. Persons so situated as to be able to observe other phases of fashionable life in London might have seen that about this time the weekly gazette, between two extracts from parish registers, announced the departure of Lord David Dirimois, by order of Her Majesty, to take command of his frigate in the White Squadron then cruising off the coast of Holland. Ursus, perceiving that Tom Jim Jack did not return, was troubled by his absence. He had not seen Tom Jim Jack since the day on which he had driven off in the same carriage with the Lady of the Gold Peace. It was indeed an enigma who this Tom Jim Jack could be, who carried off duchesses under his arm. What an interesting investigation! What questions to propound! What things to be said! Therefore Ursus said not a word. Ursus, who had had experience, knew the smart caused by rash curiosity. Curiosity ought always to be proportioned to the curious. By listening we risk our ear, by watching we risk our eye. Prudent people neither see nor hear. Tom Jim Jack had got into a princely carriage. The tavern-keeper had seen him. It appeared so extraordinary that the sailor should sit by the lady that it made Ursus circumspect. The caprices of those in high life ought to be sacred to the lower orders. The reptiles called the poor had best squat in their holes when they see anything out of the way. Quiescence is a power. Shut your eyes if you have not the good luck to be blind. Stop up your ears if you have not the good fortune to be deaf. Paralyze your tongue if you have not the perfection of being mute. The great do what they like, the little what they can. Let the unknown pass unnoticed. Do not importune mythology, do not interrogate appearances, have a profound respect for idols. Do not let us direct our gossiping towards the lessenings or increasings which take place in superior regions, of the motives of which we are ignorant. Such things are mostly optical delusions to us inferior creatures. Metamorphoses are the business of the gods. The transformations and the contingent disorders of great persons who float above us are clouds impossible to comprehend and perilous to study. Too much attention irritates the Olympians, engaged in their gyrations of amusement or fancy, and a thunderbolt may teach you that the bull you are too curiously examining is Jupiter. Do not lift the folds of the stone-coloured mantles of those terrible powers. Indifference is intelligence. Do not stir, and you will be safe. Feign death, and they will not kill you. Therein lies the wisdom of the insect. Ursus practised it. The tavern-keeper, who was puzzled as well, questioned Ursus one day. Do you observe that Tom Jim Jack never comes here now? Indeed, said Ursus, I have not remarked it. Master Nicholas made an observation in an undertone, no doubt touching the intimacy between the ducal carriage and Tom Jim Jack, a remark which, as it might have been irreverent and dangerous, Ursus took care not to hear. 
Still, Ursus was too much of an artist not to regret Tom Jim Jack. He felt some disappointment. He told his feelings to Homo, of whose discretion alone he felt certain. He whispered into the ear of the wolf, Since Tom Jim Jack ceased to come, I feel a blank as a man and a chill as a poet. This pouring out of his heart to a friend relieved Ursus. His lips were sealed before Gwynplaine, who, however, made no allusion to Tom Jim Jack. The fact was that Tom Jim Jack's presence or absence mattered not to Gwynplaine, absorbed as he was in Dea. Forgetfulness fell more and more on Gwynplaine. As for Dea, she had not even suspected the existence of a vague trouble. At the same time, no more cabals or complaints against the laughing man were spoken of. Hate seemed to have let go its hold. All was tranquil in and around the green box. No more opposition from strollers, merry andrews, nor priests. No more grumbling outside. Their success was unclouded. Destiny allows of such sudden serenity. The brilliant happiness of Gwynplaine and Dea was for the present absolutely cloudless. Little by little it had risen to a degree which admitted of no increase. There is one word which expresses the situation. Apogee. Happiness, like the sea, has its high tide. The worst thing for the perfectly happy is that it recedes. There are two ways of being inaccessible, being too high and being too low. At least as much, perhaps, as the first is the second to be desired. More surely than the eagle escapes the arrow, the animalcule escapes being crushed. This security of insignificance, if it had ever existed on earth, was enjoyed by Gwynplaine and Dea, and never before had it been so complete. They lived on daily more and more ecstatically wrapped in each other. The heart saturates itself with love as with a divine salt that preserves it, and from this arises the incorruptible constancy of those who have loved each other from the dawn of their lives, and the affection which keeps its freshness in old age. There is such a thing as the embalmment of the heart. It is of Daphnis and Chloe that Philemon and Baucis are made. The old age of which we speak, evening resembling morning, was evidently reserved for Gwynplaine and Dea. In the meantime they were young. Ursus looked on this love as a doctor examines his case. He had what was in those days termed a hypocritical expression of face. He fixed his sagacious eyes on Dea, fragile and pale, and growled out, It is lucky that she is happy. At other times he said, She is lucky for her health's sake. He shook his head and, at times, read attentively a portion treating of heart disease in Avicenna, translated by Vosiscus Fortunatus, Louvain, 1650, an old worm-eaten book of his. Dea, when fatigued, suffered from perspirations and drowsiness, and took a daily siesta, as we have already seen. One day, while she was lying asleep on the bearskin, Gwynplaine was out, and Ursus bent down softly and applied his ear to Dea's heart. He seemed to listen for a few minutes, and then stood up, murmuring, She must not have any shock. It would find out the weak place. The crowd continued to flock to the performance of Chaos Vanquished. The success of the laughing man seemed inexhaustible. 
Every one rushed to see him, no longer from Southwick only, but even from other parts of London. The general public began to mingle with the usual audience, which no longer consisted of sailors and drivers only. In the opinion of Master Nicholas, who was well acquainted with crowds, there were in the crowd gentlemen and baronets disguised as common people. Disguise is one of the pleasures of pride, and was much in fashion at that period. This mixing of the aristocratic element with the mob was a good sign, and showed that their popularity was extending to London. The fame of Gwynplaine has decidedly penetrated into the great world. Such was the fact. Nothing was talked of but the laughing man. He was talked about even at the Mohawk Club, frequented by noblemen. In the green box they had no idea of all this. They were content to be happy. It was intoxication to Dea to feel, as she did every evening, the crisp and tawny head of Gwynplaine. In love there is nothing like habit. The whole of life is concentrated in it. The reappearance of the stars is the custom of the universe. Creation is nothing but a mistress, and the sun is a lover. Light is a dazzling caryatid supporting the world. Each day, for a sublime minute, the earth, covered by night, rests on the rising sun. Dea, blind, felt a like return of warmth and hope within her when she placed her hand on the head of Gwynplaine. To adore each other in the shadows, to love in the plenitude of silence, who could not become reconciled to such an eternity? One evening, Gwynplaine, feeling within him that overflow of felicity which, like the intoxication of perfumes, causes a sort of delicious faintness, was strolling, as he usually did after the performance, in the meadow some hundred paces from the green box. Sometimes, in those high tides of feeling in our souls, we feel that we would fain pour out the sensations of the overflowing heart. The night was dark but clear. The stars were shining. The whole fairground was deserted. Sleep and forgetfulness reigned in the caravans, which were scattered over Terenzo Field. One light alone was unextinguished. It was the lamp of the Tadcaster Inn, the door of which was left ajar to admit Gwynplaine on his return. Midnight had just struck in the five parishes of Southwick, with the breaks and differences of tone of their various bells. Gwynplaine was dreaming of Dea. Of whom else should he dream? But that evening, feeling singularly troubled and full of a charm which was at the same time a pang, he thought of Dea as a man thinks of a woman. He reproached himself for this. It seemed to be failing in respect to her. The husband's attack was forming dimly within him. Sweet and imperious impatience. He was crossing the invisible frontier, on this side of which is the virgin, on the other the wife. He questioned himself anxiously. A blush, as it were, overspread his mind. The Gwynplaine of long ago had been transformed by degrees unconsciously in a mysterious growth. His old modesty was becoming misty and uneasy. We have an ear of light into which speaks the spirit, and an ear of darkness into which speaks the instinct. Into the latter strange voices were making their proposals. However pure-minded may be the youth who dreams of love, a certain grossness of the flesh eventually comes between his dream and him. Intentions lose their transparency. The unavowed desire implanted by nature 
enters into his conscience. Gwynplaine felt an indescribable yearning of the flesh, which abounds in all temptation, and Dea was scarcely flesh. In this fever, which he knew to be unhealthy, he transfigured Dea into a more material aspect, and tried to exaggerate her seraphic form into feminine loveliness. It is thou, O woman, that we require. Love comes not to permit too much of paradise. It requires the fevered skin, the troubled life, the unbound hair, the kiss electrical and irreparable, the clasp of desire. The sidereal is embarrassing, the ethereal is heavy. Too much of the heavenly in love is like too much fuel on a fire. The flame suffers from it. Gwynplaine fell into an exquisite nightmare, Dea to be clasped in his arms, Dea clasped in them. He heard nature in his heart crying out for a woman, like a Pygmalion in a dream modelling a Galatea out of the azure, in the depths of his soul he worked at the chaste contour of Dea, a contour with too much of heaven, too little of Eden. For Eden is Eve and Eve was a female, a carnal mother, a terrestrial nurse. The sacred womb of generations, the breast of unfailing milk, the rocker of the cradle of the newborn world, and wings are incompatible with the bosom of woman. Virginity is but the hope of maternity. Still, in Gwynplaine's dreams, Dea until now had been enthroned above flesh, now, however, he made wild efforts in thought to draw her downwards by that thread sex which ties every girl to earth. Not one of those birds is free. Dea, like all the rest, was within this law, and Gwynplaine, though he scarcely acknowledged it, felt a vague desire that she should submit to it. This desire possessed him in spite of himself, and with an ever-recurring relapse, he pictured Dea as woman. He came to the point of regarding her under a hitherto unheard-of form, as a creature no longer of ecstasy only, but of voluptuousness, as Dea with her head resting on the pillow. He was ashamed of this visionary desecration. It was like an attempt at profanation. He resisted its assault. He turned from it, but it returned again. He felt as if he were committing a criminal assault. To him Dea was encompassed by a cloud. Cleaving that cloud, he shuddered, as though he were raising her chemise. It was in April. The spine has its dreams. He rambled at random with the uncertain step caused by solitude. To have no one by is a provocation to wander. Whither flew his thoughts? He would not have dared to own it to himself. To heaven? No. To a bed. You are looking down upon him, O ye stars. Why talk of a man in love? Rather say a man possessed. To be possessed by the devil is the exception. To be possessed by a woman, the rule. Every man has to bear this alienation of himself. What a sorceress is a pretty woman. The true name of love is captivity. Man is made prisoner by the soul of a woman, by her flesh as well, and sometimes even more by the flesh than by the soul. The soul is the true love, the flesh the mistress. We slander the devil. It was not he who tempted Eve, it was Eve who tempted him. The woman began. Lucifer was passing by quietly. He perceived the woman, 
and became Satan. The flesh is the cover of the unknown. It is provocative, which is strange, by its modesty. Nothing could be more distracting. It is full of shame, the hussy. It was the terrible love of the surface which was then agitating Gwynplaine and holding him in its power, fearful the moment in which man covets the nakedness of woman, what dark things lurk beneath the fairness of Venus. Something within him was calling Dea aloud, Dea the maiden, Dea the other half of a man, Dea flesh and blood, Dea with uncovered bosom. That cry was almost driving away the angel. Mysterious crisis through which all love must pass, and in which the ideal is in danger. Therein is the predestination of creation. Moment of heavenly corruption. Gwynplaine's love of Dea was becoming nuptial. Virgin love is but a transition. The moment was come. Gwynplaine coveted the woman. He coveted a woman. Precipice of which one sees but the first gentle slope. The indistinct summons of nature is inexorable. The whole of woman, what an abyss! Luckily there was no woman for Gwynplaine but Dea, the only one he desired, the only one who could desire him. Gwynplaine felt that vague and mighty shudder which is the vital claim of infinity. Besides there was the aggravation of the spring. He was breathing the nameless odours of the starry darkness. He walked forward in a wild feeling of delight. The wandering perfumes of the rising sap, the heady irradiations which float in shadow, the distant opening of nocturnal flowers, the complicity of little hidden nests, the murmurs of waters and of leaves, soft sighs rising from all things, the freshness, the warmth, and the mysterious awakening of April and May is the vast diffusion of sex murmuring in whispers their proposals of voluptuousness until the soul stammers in answer to the giddy provocation. The ideal no longer knows what it is saying. Anyone observing Gwynplaine walk would have said, See, a drunken man. He almost staggered under the weight of his own heart, of spring and of the night. The solitude in the bowling green was so peaceful that at times he spoke aloud. The consciousness that there is no listener induces speech. He walked with slow steps, his head bent down, his hands behind him, the left hand in the right, the fingers open. Suddenly he felt something slipped between his fingers. He turned round quickly. In his hand was a paper, and in front of him a man. It was the man who, coming behind him with the stealth of a cat, had placed the paper in his fingers. The paper was a letter. The man, as he appeared pretty clearly in the starlight, was small, chubby-cheeked, young, sedate, and dressed in a scarlet livery, exposed from top to toe through the opening of a long grey cloak, then called a capanoche, a Spanish word contracted. In French it was cap de nuit. His head was covered by a crimson cap like the skull-cap of a cardinal, on which servitude was indicated by a strip of lace. On this cap was a plume of tisserie feathers. He stood motionless before Gwynplaine, like a dark outline in a dream. Gwynplaine recognized the Duchess's page. Before Gwynplaine could utter an exclamation of surprise, he heard the thin voice of the page, 
at once childlike and feminine in its tone, saying to him, At this hour to-morrow, be at the corner of London Bridge. I will be there to conduct you. Whither? demanded Gwynplaine. Where you are expected. Gwynplaine dropped his eyes on the letter, which he was holding mechanically in his hand. When he looked up, the page was no longer with him. He perceived a vague form lessening rapidly in the distance. It was the little valet. He turned the corner of the street, and solitude reigned again. Gwynplaine saw the page vanish, then looked at the letter. There are moments in our lives when what happens seems not to happen. Stupor keeps us for a moment at a distance from the fact. Gwynplaine raised the letter to his eyes as if to read it, but soon perceived that he could not do so for two reasons, first because he had not broken the seal, and secondly because it was too dark. It was some minutes before he remembered that there was a lamp at the inn. He took a few steps sideways, as if he knew not whither he was going. A somnambulist to whom a phantom had given a letter might walk as he did. At last he made up his mind. He ran rather than walked towards the inn, stood in the light which broke through the half-open door, and by it again examined the closed letter. There was no design on the seal, and on the envelope was written, To Gwynplaine. He broke the seal, tore the envelope, unfolded the letter, put it directly under the light, and read as follows. You are hideous. I am beautiful. You are a player. I am a duchess. I am the highest. You are the lowest. I desire you. I love you. Come. End of section 67 Recording by John Trevithick.